If you have your Bible, and I sure hope you do, turn it to James chapter 1, James chapter 1. Last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, and this week we find ourselves back in James, continuing our sermon series to this book. In just a few minutes we're going to read the last two verses of the first chapter. James is about ethics, or you might say it is about Christian living. James writes in a really blunt, straightforward style. That doesn't mean, though, it's easy to read. Mark Twain said that it's not the parts of the Bible that he didn't understand that bothered him. It's the parts that he did understand. And that applies to James. Because James is easy to understand, but the language is so blunt, so plain spoken, that James steps on your toes a little bit. And I think that's okay. I think that's something we all need. We all need God in his divinely inspired word to step on our toes. To, to kind of get into what we might think of as our comfort zone. To rattle our cage a little bit. To make us uncomfortable with sin. To convict us. To spur us on to righteous living. And that's what James is all about. See, if you're prone to talk one way but live another... And who of us aren't guilty of that? If your Christianity is long on pious phrases and short on putting them into practice, who doesn't feel a little bit convicted when they hear that? If you are a person who thinks that the grace and forgiveness of the gospel means that obeying God is optional, then James has something to say to you. James has something convicting to say to you, and it's going to make you feel a little uncomfortable. James isn't worried about stroking your ego. He's not worried about your comfort level. He's in your face, and he's got some truth to share with you. James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, if anyone thinks he is religious... And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now let's start with this word religion because I don't want it to distract you and cause you to miss out on what God wants to teach you this morning. Most of us, when we hear the word religion, we want to keep it at an arm's length distance. We say things like, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And of course, on one level, that's true. Oftentimes, religion is used as a word to talk about how people, human beings, people like you and me, can do things to try to reach God. We can get our moral act together, or we can go through religious observances, and if we do enough of them in the right way, maybe we'll reach God. And if that's what you mean by religion, then you're right to run from it. You're right to run from that. Because the Bible clearly teaches that there's nothing that any of us can ever do to reach God. No, God reached down to us when he sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. But that isn't the way James is using religion here in James chapter 1. 
When James says religion, what he's talking about are the practices or the lifestyle that spring from a heart that has genuinely been changed by God. Practices like praying or reading your Bible or attending church or a small group. So in that kind of since we're all religious people and that our lives are more and more in the process of being changed to reflect what God has done in our heart. So James sets up a contrast in these verses between what he calls um, a worthless religion and religion that is pure or undefiled. Now when James is talking about worthless religion, he's not condemning all religious ritual or all religious traditions. No, what James is speaking against is the kind of religious ritual, the kind of religious tradition that stops with mere words. That is concerned only with the outward, but ignores the inward. The prophet Isaiah talks about this same kind of contrast between true and false religion in Isaiah chapter 1. He uses a lot more colorful language. Let's read it together. It says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. Now perhaps you're familiar with that before Christ in the Old Testament, God called his people to worship him in ways that are different than we worship him today. And so they worshiped him through animal sacrifices. And God says, what are they to me? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. So here these people going through these religious rituals, they think God's pleased, but he's not. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So what kind of religion does God hate with all his being? What kind of religion does Causes God to cover his eyes and stop listening to our prayers. What kind of religion does God call meaningless, worthless, and detestable? Well, any kind of religion that overlooks the needs of the oppressed. Any kind of religion that ignores the need of the orphan and the widow. That's what James has laid before us in these two verses in chapter 1. Let's read it again. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
So you see the contrast between worthless or pure and undefiled religion. James gives us a test, three tests, to see where our heart is. He says, the first test is your tongue. Do you bridle it? Is it under control? The second is how do you treat orphans and widows? And the third is to keep yourself unstained from the world. Now throughout this letter of James, we're going to have plenty of opportunity to talk about the tongue and to talk about how we are affected by the world we live in. So we're going to leave those to another Sunday. And instead, we're going to focus at the heart of verse 27, where God says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now why single out orphans and widows? Well, because they were some of the most helpless people in the first century. There was no governmental social safety net. And so they were vulnerable because they could not provide for themselves. When it says that they are in their affliction, what James means is that they can't even care for their most basic needs. They are unable to have a job. No one is looking out for them. And so James uses orphans and widows to refer to all kinds of helpless, needy, hurting people. And what he's saying is, is that you can go through all the religious observances in the world. You can pray great prayers. You can sing with a full heart. You can read your Bible. You can memorize Bible verses. But if your heart is not being changed so that you care more and more for the needy and the hurting and the helpless, then God, in the book of James, declares your religion to be worthless. See, he's saying that one test, not the only test, but one test of true religion, of true, genuine faith, is the degree in which we help the helpless in our world. They might be widows, they might be orphans, they might be immigrants, they might be the handicapped, they might be homeless, they might be the mentally ill. And the reason it is so incredibly important that we live this way is because this goes to the very heart and character of God. Psalm 68, verse 5. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Who is God and where does he live? Well, God lives in his holy dwelling and he is a father to the orphan and he is a defender of the widow. The, the least you can say is that God has a special place in his heart for the widow and orphan. But I think there's far more to be said here than just that. This is a description of what God is like. You wonder what God is like. People ask you or me, what's God like? Well, let me tell you what God is like. God cares for the helpless. God cares for the weak and the lonely and the left out. God cares for the hurting and the marginalized. God cares about those that everyone else has forgotten about. God cares about the orphan and the widow. So when God calls us as a church, when God calls us as individual Christians to look out for the orphan, the widow, the hurting, and the helpless, what he's saying is, look out for the people that I care so deeply about myself. 
Now, where do you get the power to do that? See, I don't know about you and where you are in thinking about these kinds of issues, but I'm long past the point where I enjoy the, the kind of the noble do-goodism. Save the world. We're going to change the world. I, I, I'm, I'm past the idealism that doesn't account with the fact that we live in a fallen world and this is incredibly tough. I'm past the point where I want to motiv- be motivated by or motivate others by guilt. I'm past all that. I don't want to deal with that anymore. Because here's the honest to goodness truth. We might as well be honest with ourselves and each other and God. If you're going to be the kind of person that cares for needy people, if you're going to be the kind of person who takes care of orphans and visits widows, if you're going to be the kind of person that serves as foster parents or gives financially or serves somewhere like Granny's House or Love, Inc. or the Food Bank or Coyote Hill, if you're going to go and spend time with those in prison, if you're going to mentor a child, if you're going to do anything like that, then you're going to have to count the cost because it is very costly. It requires great sacrifice. You know this if you've tried it. It requires a sacrifice of time. It requires a sacrifice of your treasure. It requires a sacrifice of the comfortable, hassle-free life that we all so much crave. So where are we going to find the motivation? Where are we going to find the power to love the unlovely? Where are we going to find the power and the motivation to stay in for the long haul? Not to start, but also to finish. Well, the short answer is that we're going to find that power, that sustaining power in the gospel. But let, let me show you in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 24. God says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. Now, just to be clear, that's the orphan, right? Don't deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. So he's going to come back to this in a second. But his motivation to care for hurting people is because they were once slaves in Egypt. Let's read on. Verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And now here's the motivation. Here's the power that's going to sustain us. Here's what's going to turn us from selfish people into sacrificial people. Verse 22, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. See, that's the gospel he's referring to. Maybe you know the story that Egypt was taken into captivity, or that Israel was taken into captivity in Egypt for 400 years. They were slaves. For 400 years, they lived in utter misery of slavery to the Egyptian elite. 
and they cried out to God, and God heard their cry, and God sent Moses. And through many miracles, Moses delivered them from their slavery and led them into the promised land. That is the gospel. Because the Bible tells us that we were slaves. Slaves not in Egypt, but slaves to sin. And we were in utter misery. And God sent His Son, not Moses, but one greater than Moses. God sent His own Son to deliver us from slavery and sin and to give us new life and to lead us into the promised land of heaven. So why am I going to care about the orphan, the widow, and all those who are needy and hurting and marginalized on the outside? Why would I care about them? Why would I sacrifice my time, my talent, my treasure? Why would I go through all the hassle? Because God sent His Son for me. The reason that you and I should be motivated to help the helpless is because God helped us when we were helpless. The reason that we should be ready and eager to work with the unlovely and to love the unlovely is because God loved us when we were unlovely. See, in the gospel is the power to lead a transformed life. In the gospel is the power to love those that nobody else loves because God loved us in just that kind of way. I don't know what goes through your mind, but here's things that go through my mind, to my embarrassment. God, I, I kind of want to help responsible, needy people. I don't really want to help irresponsible, needy people. I like when I help that people make wise decisions and work hard and do all the right things with my help. Those are the people I feel good about helping. And I bet God would look at me and say, well, lucky for you that I didn't think that way about you. Because when you were an idiot, when you made one bad choice after the next, when you were running from truth and running from God and running from light, God says, I came and I pursued you relentlessly in Jesus Christ. I didn't wait for you to get your moral act together. I didn't wait for you to become responsible. I didn't wait for you to start making wise choices. I came and rescued you from your foolishness. But God, sometimes you help people and you help people and they just, I mean, goodness gracious. Where do you get the patience to keep going back? Where do you get the patience when they don't seem to connect and everything doesn't click and it gets hard and difficult and messy and they become a hassle to me? Where do you get the patience? And God says, because I was patient with you. This is not a, 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 a message of rescue the orphans. Aren't we good people? We're not like those people. We're good people. We're hardworking, smart people, responsible. Now that is so condescending, so arrogant, so ridiculous sounding in God's ears, I'm sure. This is not about, you know, helping the poor and needy out of some moralistic virtue. This is about understanding the gospel and how God came to us when we were sinners and rescued us. And now we want to share that same love with unlovely hurting people because God shared it with us when we were unlovely and hurting. That's what this is about. James chapter 1 verse 27 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That word visit is incredibly important. It's incredibly important because it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to say some really important things about this topic. Let me show you one. Matthew 25. We've got to pick up in the middle. Hopefully you'll, you'll build the track. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, and give you a drink? And did we, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see what Matthew is saying? Do you see what Jesus is saying in Matthew? It's of incredible importance. The, the word visit here is the same word that we're called to do, to visit, to care for, to be concerned about, to look out after orphans. And when you care about and look after and visit needy, hurting people, Jesus says you're doing it to him. Because sometimes you go and you visit people and you care for people and you don't know if it's making any difference and you don't know if it's worth it. Sometimes you don't even know if they know you're there. This could be a waste of my time. Let someone else take care of this problem. Uh, one of the things we do is we go on a student parent mission trip. Some of us have, many of us have over the years to Jamaica. And one of the things we do while we're there is we visit something called the infirmary, which is a place where there are many older people, but also mentally challenged people, people with significant mental and physical handicaps. And we go and we spend time and we pray and we talk and we read, and you have to just think, I, I don't know if anybody knows that we're even here. I, I, I brought a picture, this is my daughter a couple years ago. Uh, she, like many others here, has spent time there, and these are two guys who have massive problems. I don't know. They can't quite talk. They don't quite make sense. But they love if somebody just comes and spends time with them. And you wonder whether it's people in your life or people like this on the other side of the world. Does it matter? Jesus says it matters. Jesus says that when you go to hurting and needy people and you visit them, you're visiting Jesus. You're ministering to Jesus. And Jesus notices and Jesus cares. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke about a uh, woman, a widow, who her only son died. So there's a funeral. It's in a city called Nain, and there's a funeral, and Jesus walks up on it, and he sees this woman in tears. I mean, you talk about a vulnerable woman. Not only is she a widow, but her one and only son has now died. And Jesus stops the funeral, and while everybody's mourning, he raises this young man from the dead, and he gives him back to his widowed mother. 
Luke 7, 16. This describes what happens. Fear, see, fear seized them all. Fear seized the crowd. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God had visited, there's that word again, visited his people. You see, they all said, look, God showed up. How do I know God showed up? Because someone's here caring for the widow. And so all the people around, the believers and unbelievers alike, realized that God was present because the needy and the hurting were being cared for. Look, we live in a time right now when many people in our culture and our day will not listen to our arguments for why our faith is true. Doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it, but it does mean that they're not paying attention. There are many people in our world right now who are against our moral convictions that are rooted in the scripture. And they do not want to hear from us as Christians. But one thing they will pay attention to, one thing they have always paid attention to all the way back here in the Gospel of Luke and elsewhere in the Bible, they've always paid attention to our acts of loving kindness, to our acts of self-sacrifice and service. What will get the world's attention, what will get non-Christians' attention and give us a platform and a chance to talk to them about our Savior is our, la our, our acts of selflessness and humility and sacrifice. I'm sure you know that there is a new pope as of recent days. And that was all over the news. And of course, a lot of it was on the news because anytime a new pope is selected, that's going to be worldwide headlines. But this particular pope has been written up quite a bit, uh, not because he's just a new pope, but because he, he, he's done certain things. He's done certain things out of humility and sacrifice. Like, for example, perhaps you saw the, uh, 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 the picture of him riding in a bus with the other cardinals. They were on to kind of this big mass, and he had every right to ride in the Pope Mobile, and that's what everybody's thinking, and they're all kind of looking for him to get over here. Where are you? He's over in the bus? What? Yeah, I'm just one of the guys. He paid his own bill. He cleaned up his own room. And we think, well, of course he did, but popes don't do that kind of thing. At the start of the first Mass, instead of going up in front of everybody, the first thing he did is he just went and found a guy in a wheelchair, an old cardinal in a wheelchair who couldn't get up, and he went and he spent time with him. And what's grabbed the world's attention about this Pope is that he is one who has made a commitment to care for the needy and the hurting. And he's getting completely different press coverage. Here's my point, not media relations, my point is the world is watching for acts of love and service and sacrifice and selflessness. Nicholas Kristof is a New York Times columnist. Uh, I've mentioned him before. He doesn't consider himself a Christian. Far from it. In fact, in what we'll read here in just a moment, he, he, he says that over again, that he does, he's not a Christian. Uh, he loves to poke at uh, evangelicals, people who believe the gospel and at the authority of scripture. But he also has a tremendous respect for them. Look what he wrote in a column in the New York Times in 2011. But in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others. Evangelicals, that's people like us that believe the gospel, are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities, mostly church-related. More important, they go to the front lines, at home or abroad, in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. 
And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives this way, and it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. Incredible. Here's a guy who doesn't believe in Christ, but who stands up against the elite who mock Christians at New York cocktail parties. And why does he do it? Because we had a great argument? No. Because of the selfless sacrifice for the hurting that he has seen Christians make all over the world. So get this, motivated by the gospel, motivated because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we care for the widows and the orphans and the needy and the hurting. And when we do that, we are ministering to Jesus himself, and the watching world notices and is more open or receptive to hear the message of Christ. Now for a story. A guy named Paul McKnight is a pastor in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and he has sponsored a child through Compassion International for a number of years he and his family had. He had a chance to visit that child who lived in Ethiopia. And so he meets this girl and she lives in this uh, kind of one-room house slash bar because her house was also the neighborhood saloon, if you will. And he's spending time there giving her some of the gifts that his family had sent for her and talking to her. Some kind of guys in her, kind of rowdier guys in her. They're obviously there for the bar. And, and his guide, the translator with Compassion International, the staff member, kind of tugs at his arm and says, Hey, Paul, we got to leave now. It's not safe for you to be here. Well, what do you mean to leave? I want to keep that. No, Paul, it's not safe for you to be here. we got to go. Well, what about the girl? What happens to her? Because, well... This is her house. But is it safe for her, he asks? I don't know that it's safe, but it is her home. What do you mean it's not safe? Well, all the things you probably think I mean when it's not safe. When I say it's not safe. Well, we can't leave her. Yeah, Paul, this is her home. we got to go. Well, what happens to vulnerable girls like that, Paul asks this man. And this staff member with Compassion International says, look, we teach the girls that when they're afraid to scream and run to the church. Scream and run to the church and there you will find help and there you will find safety. So the question for us this morning is will the church, will we as Christians, we are the church, that's not somebody else, will we, the church, be there for them? If we have the heart of God, we will. Now at some point, you just start to get overwhelmed. At some point you start thinking of all the needy and hurting people, Maybe in your own family, in your own neighborhood, in your own town, in your own country, much less to think about every orphan and every widow and every marginalized person throughout the world. And if you're like me, when you start getting overwhelmed and it seems too much, you just start to shut down. That's kind of the defense mechanism. I don't know if you know this, but the Pope tweets. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. He tweets a lot more than the last Pope. So here's a papal tweet. I think it's pretty good. 
We must not give in to the lies of the evil one when he tells us there's nothing we can do in the face of violence, injustice, and sin. There's a lot of insight there. Because what happens when we start getting overwhelmed is we start thinking, I, I can't do anything about violence, injustice, and sin. I can't take care of that problem. It's too big. And the Pope's reminding us that that is a lie from hell. That is a lie from our enemy. He's putting his finger on something in our heart and says, be careful, don't go shut down. That's not what God's called you to do. Instead, like others have said, like we've said here before, instead, take this policy. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Actually do for one, be fully engaged with one what you wish you could do for everyone. So let me tell you about a couple of ways people here are making a difference. Let me introduce you to Daniel and Michelle Boatman and their children. Um, see their three biological children, and then right there in the middle you see Marin. She's from China. She was 22 months old, living in an orphanage, when they went through the international adoption process. And if you have any idea what that's like, it is extremely costly, extremely time-consuming. But after spending years in that process, they finally got Marin. And they went to an orphanage in China where there's lots of other kids. Marin was, was, was born without her lower left leg and missing uh, several fingers. And so she was born disabled. And they went there. And in all those kids, they took her and brought her home and made her a part of her family. You see her around here. She walks through our halls. She's down in Crossing Kids right now probably. She's not, they're not the only family. A lot of families have adopted both locally and internationally. But can you see the gospel in her story? Can you imagine these people who've come from a long, far away to help this helpless child who is born with a disability that no one wants in South Asia because she's a girl and she's disabled and she's been abandoned. She didn't have enough food to eat, but in her misery and her help, here comes this person from a long way away to rescue her, to adopt her into their family. That's the gospel. And that's what God has done for us. We were needy and hurting and disabled and helpless, spiritually disfigured beyond recognition. But God came from a long way away, left the throne of heaven to come here, to enter into our world, to rescue us and to adopt us and to make us children in his own family. Michelle told me this week that when they were at that orphanage, the director of the orphanage begged her, begged them to come back and adopt another kid because she said very, very few will ever leave there. Now, not everyone here, probably not most people here, are called to adoption, whether locally or internationally. But you can do other things. The boatmans are trying to go back to that orphanage and adopt another kid. There are many people at the crossing who are in the process of adopting. You could give toward that process. It'll take a lot of people. It'll take a church to rescue kids like that. You could be a mentor to someone else's child. Just got an email last night, single mom, wanting to start a mentoring program for parents of, or for children of single parents. Could you help there? What could you do? What could you do for one? Could you sponsor a kid? Could you sponsor a kid through Compassion International? Let me show you a short video to explain what that looks like.
Every day, millions of children fight for their lives. They face a dangerous enemy, one who would steal their joy, their childhood and their hope. That enemy is poverty. For a young girl like Karina, poverty doesn't just mean hunger, ill health and a lack of opportunity. It means fear and vulnerability as she is forced to fend for herself and her younger brothers and sisters while her parents struggle every day to put food on the table. They lack the most basic of needs and without intervention, Karina's future is an all too familiar story. Ginselli, a dentist from the Dominican Republic, knows more than most the plight of those in need. Karina reminds me when I was her age because I used to live in a house like that with only one room and no bathroom inside. It's a story of daily struggles. You start just looking at yourself like you don't have any value. You think, I cannot change what I am. My fear was to end my life as the teenagers that I saw. I always wanted to be a dentist. When I just come to my reality, I just understand that I couldn't afford that. If we didn't have just a little bit of rice in our house, how come can I pay in university? How come can I think and study? Four years ago, Karina's life changed through the help of compassion when someone at a church event in North Carolina chose to become her sponsor. Ginselli knows what a difference this makes. My story changed when compassion with my sponsor and also the team of my church came to my life. It was really exciting for me to go to the project because I knew that a lot of friends were waiting for me. And also because my director was really lovely. She used to hug us. She used to ask her, hey, Giselle, how are you? Through the project, I was able to go to my school with my stomach full of food. If I get sick, I have someone to take care of me. Every day we have someone who teaches a Bible story and we used to sing and sometimes the teacher just stand up and say who can start praying and a lot of kids were raising their hands and it means that we just believe in God, God was with us. We as a child we are seeds and if someone just take us and put us in the right earth and give us water through letters and word through the team of compassion, we start growing. And one day, we start giving fruits. My sponsor used to write it to me. I can do everything in Jesus Christ. So in the deep part of my heart, I knew that God was able to do something with my dream. If I were able to have my sponsor in front of me, the only thing that I can just tell her is just thank you. Thank you so much for changing my life. Thank you so much for my past. And thank you so much for what I am right now.
because what I am right now is because God used her so much. If someone is considering and sponsor a child, what I can say is just do it. <laughs> Don't think about it, just do it. That's it. I'm going to tell you how you can sponsor a child through compassion if you'd like. But before that, we need to worship God through our offering. And before that, we need to pray. Will you pray with me? Father, I think what you want us to get this morning is how far away from you we were, how lost and helpless. We were, and Jesus came for us. I think that what you want is to step back and just be amazed that the God of the universe loved us and came and rescued us out of our misery. God, I pray that we would have that kind of heart, that you would change us so that we would kind of have the heart to show others the same love that you showed us. That we'd be able to love our enemies because you loved us when we were your enemy. We'd be able to love the unlovely because you loved us when we were unlovely. We'd be able to be patient with everyone because you were patient with us. We'd be able to forgive because you've forgiven us. Oh God, I pray that you would raise up out of our church an army of Christians who love Christ and love our world. And that our city and our state and our world would see the love of a Savior who leaves heaven to come to earth to rescue sinners. Oh God, make that so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.